0: Astronomy and physics works in a world that's sensor-based, fundamentally, in terms of our observations. Because it's sensor-based, there's noise. So unlike in the kind of AlphaGo Atari world, where every pixel has a perfect measurement, if you take an image of the sky, or you, you measure some time series, there's noise associated with it. And because there's noise, and because there's a finite amount of training data, if you build models off of that, you get uncertainties in the models because of its lack of expressiveness or its overgeneralization or uh, overfitting. And then you also have a a source of uncertainty in what it is that you're trying to understand just because fundamentally you don't have a perfect
1: measurement. Your signal noise isn't perfect. You're listening to Gradient Descent, a show about machine learning in the real world. And I'm your host, Lucas Bewald. Today I'm talking to Josh Bloom, who is the chair of the UC Berkeley astronomy department and astronomy has been the source of many innovations in data and machine learning. And it's also changed a lot due to machine learning. And so I'm really excited to talk to him about astronomy in general, but also how machine learning has affected the field. Josh, so thanks so much for doing this. I, I have like so many questions about astronomy in, in general. <laughs> as, a, as someone interested in it, but not very knowledgeable about it, I'm going to try to control myself from just going down that path. But one thing I was thinking about is it's, it seems like astronomy has informed or, or kind of ex-astronomers have done so much interesting work in machine learning. I was, I was kind of wondering if you have any thoughts on you know, why that is, like why there's such a path from astronomy into machine learning. It feels like it must have something to do with the large data sets that that you all deal with. But is there something there? I mean, even you went into a startup at some point and kind of came back into the field, right?
0: Yeah. I mean, the way i put it this way is that astronomers... Are quite good at using and co-opting tools that are built elsewhere to get our work done, and you know maybe the most famous example is this guy named Galileo who heard about this thing called the telescope, and instead of you know pointing at the horizon looking for enemy ships, he sort of pointed up that way, and the the rest is history. We have been co-opting tools for centuries to for, for our own benefit, and. Partly that's because I think astronomers are naturally curious people, but also because we're looking for an edge fundamentally. We are often working right at the limit of where there's an obvious answer, where you have a lot of data and it's high signal noise to where it's just complete noise. And the real discoveries are happening, you know, essentially at the five sigma level. Mm -hmm. So we we are incentivized in many ways to, to pull in all these different tools and, and toolkits from all over the place. Astronomers obviously aren't just using these tools. We're using a whole bunch of kind of inference techniques and problem-solving sel- problem skills in a way that I think uh, uh, it becomes very valuable outside of the specific questions that we ask. So... For sure, when when I started a company in the machine learning space, and we could talk about the origin story of that if you're interested and how how we sort of came to ML, uh, we started hiring. And while we certainly weren't looking to hire people that had a similar background to us, oftentimes when we got into coding exercises and we got into solving problems, a lot of the people that were making it through that we were excited about had a physics, more broadly, an astronomy background, and there were people that could work with something that they had potentially never seen before, uh, analyze it in a way an engineer might to sort of get it down to its constituent parts, and then innovate on, on top of that. But I think you're right. The other big component, at least in these days, is the availability of just so much data and our need to do something with that data in real time with limited resources is a natural entree into where machine learning comes in.
1: From your perspective, like like, what do you feel like the big, like, interesting questions are right now in astronomy? Like, what what might like what what do you feel like we might learn in the next like, I don't know, a couple of decades that would really kind of change change the field?
0: Well, it's it's all over the place. First of all, uh, one way to think about astronomy is as A great laboratory for physics so if we if we start there and you know i think it's maybe somewhat apocryphal but einstein really didn't like astronomers but it turns out most tests of general relativity happen in the astronomy context there's some terrestrial ways in which we can test gr but most of the really interesting tests of gr these days and 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 has been for 100 years is by looking at the skies and specific events and specific large-scale structure of the skies gives us gives us clues into some of the very basics of how the universe works at a uh, not just global scale, but at a, at a microscopic scale. So we're also testing you know, our understanding of, of how atoms work uh, and understanding even what's going inside of uh, the nucleus of atoms by looking at what happens on extremely large scales, uh, which is just mind blowing to think about. So if we think about uh, astronomy as that laboratory for physics, another way to ask that question would be, what are the really important physics questions that we have? One is, what is the nature of matter at extremely high densities and temperatures beyond nuclear density? So we have objects like neutron stars, which are extremely compact stars that have the same mass thereabouts of our sun, but are the size of San Francisco, and so that. At that density, we can't reproduce that in the lab. We need to look at how those stars behave when matter impinges upon them or just even what their static uh, distributions are in radius and, and mass uh, to learn something about what's happening with uh, nuclear matter at that at those really high densities. We don't know whether general relativity is right. It looks like it's really, really good on a lot of different scales and a lot of different um. Uh, mass scales and a lot of different length scales, but we're constantly testing this um, hypothesis that is general relativity of whether it is a perfect description of um, how matter moves in the universe and how the universe is shaped by matter. Uh, We know it can't be perfect because it breaks down at at the quantum mechanical scale. And there are things that happen in astronomy that allow us to test some fundamental uh, precepts and hypotheses that come out of general relativity. So in the gravitational wave world, which is uh, essentially the ripples of space-time due to the uh, changing locations of matter around other pieces of matter, we've had massive breakthroughs in just the last couple of years observationally, where we've seen the in-spirals of black holes and potentially in spiral of neutron stars smashing into each other in the last few seconds there's a huge burst of gravitational wave energy which we can detect on earth but we can also now start to see glimmers of the idea that we can start testing some basic ideas of, of general relativity in those last even milliseconds so as instrumentation gets better there i suspect our understanding of where gr uh is is working and where it potentially breaks down will become really interesting. Um, we're also interested on at, at cosmological scales in understanding the expansion history of the universe, the origin of the universe, what why did the universe appear to inflate and exponentiate um, so rapidly in just even less than a millisecond, the 10 to the minus 43 kind of seconds? Why did it grow so quickly? Uh, we know it had to based on observations at later times. Uh, and What's absolutely remarkable right now is that when we look at the constituent parts that drives the dynamics of how the universe we think changes, as in how fast it grows and how fast it, it appears to be accelerating in its growth, ordinary matter, as I'm sure you and your listeners know very well, makes up only a few percent of, of that recipe. Uh, dark matter is of order, you know, a quarter of it, and then. Uh, dark energy is is the other part of it. We really don't know anything about dark energy. We don't know whether it's a particle. We don't know whether it's something um, even deeper than that. We don't know whether dark matter is a particle on a tiny scale that isn't predicted by the standard theory or whether it's large clumps of, of black holes that were left over after the primordial expansion of the universe. So the biggest breakthroughs may come in, a, in a, a deep and fundamental understanding of what are those constituent parts. It may also come with a recognition that the framework that we have for understanding how the universe unfolds is right now fundamentally wrong. And we'll look back on this in, in a couple of decades and say, boy, we were only looking at just part of the elephant. And now when we have a bigger picture of it, you know, things become more clear. There's, there's more, obviously, and the last thing I'll just say, because I'd be remiss not to, is understanding the origins of life and the prevalence of uh, planets that can sustain life outside of our solar system. Uh, there is a huge push, both at Berkeley, where I am, and then across the world, in building new instrumentation and new theory that helps us understand uh, how planets evolve, where habitable planets could be around sun-like stars, and how we're actually going to find them, characterize them, and, and potentially even understand what uh, potentially primitive forms of life there are in those atmospheres.
1: So I have a feeling it's probably an annoying question, but it comes up a lot when I talk to ML people just in kind of casual conversation who don't really know about astronomy. So I'll just just ask it because I, I hear it a lot, um, and I'm kind of curious. It, it, I. I guess like when i I hear about like dark energy and dark matter, I kind of wonder it's like do you really is that just sort of like a fudge factor that shows that you don't really like we don't really understand like what the physical laws of the universe are is there like a reason to call it like matter and energy like is there some some sense that yeah you're sure that so it is in some matter? sense
0: there are kind of two fudge factors right? right fudge factor a, which we'll call dark matter and fudge factor b, which we'll call dark energy dark matter is much better understood in how it behaves than dark energy, there's a lot of evidence that this stuff actually exists. Uh, I I won't go into all the details here, but on many different scales, we have observational evidence that shows that while there are some people in in the theory world that feel like they can explain away some pieces of that evidence, there is no successful alternative theory for explaining away this fudge factor with just sort of a different way of thinking about the universe, it looks like it's actually stuff. We know it interacts gravitationally, and we hope that it interacts uh, weakly in other ways. There are lots of endeavors actually looking for dark matter at the, within a lab or within a cave, and there's some other ideas of how astronomers could actually find uh, the details of how dark matter interacts with itself and maybe with ordinary matter. So, yes, it's a fudge factor in some sense to explain the overall evolution of the universe, but it was originally discovered to explain the anomalously fast um, motions of galaxies in clusters of galaxies. You just sort of add up the total mass associated with the light of galaxies, because we know how to roughly map the light of a star to its rough mass and the distribution um, thereof. Uh, there just wasn't enough mass, so there was this missing mass that's associated with galaxies. It turns out there's also missing mass associated with our own galaxy, and we've been able to systematically rule out sort of ordinary matter like electrons and protons. But it, it, it almost, you know, I think the best bet is that it is some other series of
1: particles that we haven't yet envisioned, but one day we may be able to find.
0: And on, on do the you know like its distribution
1: side, on a like a scale, like a solar system, like, can you tell, like, where, where it would be from gravitational effects? Like, it sounds like you, it follows a similar distribution to matter we can observe. That's know, right. Like yeah, but or it, or it or... actually,
0: we think within our own galaxy, the dark matter, which is all around us, either as a, essentially a fluid, uh, so it's, you know, there's particles of dark matter running through you all the time, or in, like, extreme clumps in the form of, You know, primordial black holes, that's the other extreme, that have a mass, uh, the mass of a comet or or a mountain. Those, there'd be dozens of those flying through our solar system. Uh, There are potential ways in which we could actually discover these dark clumps. And we have a whole series of observations looking for the particle version of that. It behaves a lot like ordinary matter, but in our own galaxy, while uh, gas and stars, at least in the local solar neighborhood, are moving of order something like 200 kilometers a second around the galaxy, we think that there is a fluid or these large um, clumps of it which are moving in slightly different ways than the ordinary matter. So the ordinary matter and the dark matter, by definition of the gravitational interactions, actually do talk to each other and they do influence each other. But because the dark matter is sort of non-compressive and unlike gas when you smash it together and you, you get bright and you get heat, uh, this stuff, sort of, this fluid, sort of, sloshes around uh, back and forth. I don't know of a way in which we'd be able to detect the amount of dark matter that we think must be, let's say, in the sun, because there's almost certainly some amount of dark matter that's been captured in the sun. It's such a small fraction compared to ordinary matter around us that you know there there are plenty of ways in which could, it could be hiding in, in plain sight. On the dark energy side, that is very much more of a of a, of a fudge factor to explain the dynamics of how the universe um, expands. And in fact, uh, again, going back to Einstein, when um, he was working out some of the dynamics of the universe, he had this thing that he called his biggest blunder, which was coming up with this fudge factor constant to sort of make the left-hand side and the right-hand side of the equation work. And then when it was found in the 30s and 40s and 50s that there wasn't any of this accelerating expansion, he thought it was a big blunder, but ironically... Uh, we actually needed that fudge factor. What's interesting is that we have that as a constant. It's con- so that is, it's got a constant amount of um, energy um, per unit volume. That's that's sort of the simplest way to think about it. But we also don't know whether it's constant in time. It could actually be changing its constant. So there could uh, be a Wouldn't you see that in different
1: rate. rates of expansion?
0: Yeah, so there'd be different rates. There's already different rates of expansion just because uh, in the early history of the universe, ordinary matter and dark matter sort of dominated it, uh, dominated the expansion, as in it was sort of slowing up. And then as the universe became more tenuous and this material basically lost its, its dominance in these equations, there was a time uh, several billion years ago when dark energy sort of took over and is now the thing driving the dynamic. So if, if dark energy is a constant and we've measured it well enough then the universe will just sort of continue to exp- exponentiate and just grow. And, and there'll be sort of this big, it won't be exactly an evaporation, but every, it'll be called the big rip. We'll basically all just rip apart from, from each other. And cosmology in the next 100 billion years will stop being about the observations of 40 billion galaxies and turn in just observations of stuff in our solar neighborhood because all the other galaxies will run far away from us. But we don't know that that's the case. It, it could actually that constant could turn off for some reason. It could uh, have other terms that haven't yet expressed themselves.
1: Cool. Well, I, okay. So I have to also ask you about the other topic that you brought up on, on finding so many habitable or seemingly possibly habitable planets in, in the universe. So, I mean, or at least in our that we can see. I mean, do you have any kind of thoughts on that, or like other theories why we don't see? Like life on, on, if there's so many planets out there, why why we don't see other other life? Well, I think we know
0: now that life, at least intelligent life, is not teeming, right? And and Enrico Fermi had some, the the Fermi par- paradox, of the idea if life is so ubiquitous, you know, why aren't they all around? It's pretty clear that it's not as ubiquitous as every solar system has, you know, intelligent life. That's not not a big surprise. What we haven't yet nailed down in the overall demographics is what, uh, what is the exact set of conditions that could give rise to any sort of life. We have a reasonable understanding now that of order uh, one solar system around a sun-like star, will have of order one habitable planet. Maybe it's two or maybe it's a half, but it's not zero and it's not, it's not ten. And then the, the, you know, getting into the, the actual chemistry of what leads to, and biology of what leads to, to life that's sustainable, uh, that's really kind of where the cutting-edge questions are on the theory side. And obviously, we have some great laboratories in our own solar system to ask those questions form of atmospheres of other planets. And we're just now entering an era where we have sensitive enough equipment to be able to measure detailed chemical properties of atmospheres of other planets and other solar systems. And what I think will become clear over the next, let's say, two decades is exactly what the rate is of planets that are in habitable um, zones around their sun-like stars that appear to be in some sort of disequilibrium uh, when you look at the overall chemistry of, of and the temperature profile of those atmospheres. Uh, how is it that we have you know, something that is a volatile, volatile element that is still around? It means that there's something else on the surface that's, that's producing it. It doesn't, won't guarantee that it's life. The question about you know, finding other intelligent life that we could potentially interact with, in some sense, is beyond the horizon of modern astronomy, but there are groups, as you know, that are using modern
1: astronomy tools to, to do those sorts of searches. And when you say disequilibrium, is that something that we would notice about Earth if we were far away from it and, and looking at it?
0: Yeah, um, it's a little bit outside of my field, but if you took a spectrum of the Earth's atmosphere, and people have done this by looking at the earth shine. So right around the time of the crescent moon, as it's setting right after the sunset, you often can see the sort of, uh, the unilluminated part of the moon. And that's because what you're seeing is the sun's light reflecting off of the earth's atmosphere, bouncing off the moon and then coming back to your eyes. You can take a spectrum of that earth shine and there are signatures in that, that if we saw that in other planets, we would say, "Uh aha, there's something that, and, and I, I don't know the details of which element does what. That is
1: not in an equilibrium given the temperature of the Earth. Oh, cool, interesting. Um, it seems like astronomy made so many advances in, in in my lifetime, which is which is so cool. Do you, do you think that that's do you think that's mostly due to like that kind of better equipment to to see more, or do you think it's like, you know, kind of better use or like figuring things out with like from what we're seeing? I, I guess it must be both, but it's some of the, the astronomy experiments that I read about just seem like totally brilliant of like kind of synthesizing. It seems like we get like one snapshot of the world around us. And, and it's incredible to me how much physics or how, you know, how many things we discover from just kind of like looking up into space. Well, I, I think a big part
0: of that is indeed the 20th century was the opening of, of our eyes beyond visible wavelengths. And uh, you know, X-ray astronomy really only started in the 50s, gamma ray astronomy around that time as well. Once we get above the Earth's atmosphere, which absorbs a lot of the light, thankfully, at other wave bands, uh, we just see a whole universe that we either didn't imagine or only had a vague idea could be out there. So a big part of the 20th century was just uh, opening up our eyes to, to new wave bands and understanding the connection between different objects and events like supernovae, how they are connected to each other across different wave bands and what their role is in driving the dynamics of, of, of a specific galaxy and what their role is in the creation of elements. We're, we didn't really even know how to ask those questions, I think, uh, properly until the last several decades. So part of it's that, and that, that, of, that, that opening of the eyes is driven a lot by technology But then it's, okay, well, I have my eyes open, but they're blurry, so how do I sharpen them? There are plenty of things, again, back to the original conversation uh, at the beginning around co-opting tools. Astronomers learned about adaptive optics being used for uh, military purposes and were able to get much clearer images of the sky uh, because we're now pointing lasers up into the atmosphere and exciting a sodium layer high up in the atmosphere, which acts as a temporary star. And we have corrective lenses that at many, many times a second are sort of correcting the waveform errors that come as the star's light comes through the atmosphere and gets blurred. So we have all of that kind of technology. Of course, digital technology starting in, in the early 1980s meant we're taking very high dynamic range images of the same parts of the sky we were looking at before. So we were able to see farther away, see fainter objects And at the same time, there were a number of innovations in the telescope world, even on the ground, that allowed us to build bigger and bigger telescopes. In the end, we haven't gone that far from Galileo's telescope to the world's largest telescopes, 10 meter class telescopes today. That's just bigger and bigger collecting light. But the innovations that it's taken for us to get there have been been real and have been driven by the need for uh, seeing fainter objects, seeing with greater clarity, seeing across more, more wave bands. Some of the biggest discoveries in some sense happened outside of the electromagnetic band over the last many years. The observations of very high-energy cosmic rays, so these very high-energy charged particles moving very close to the speed of light. Understanding the origins of those is still you know, uh, an, act, an active uh, topic. And the discovery of gravitational waves directly using interferometers on the ground is a massive innovation that took arguably 40 years uh, for us to get there technologically and several billion dollars of uh, taxpayer money that went into that. And it, it, it took a large number of people to be very, very convinced that the physics was right and they'd be able to get there. And so the fact that they were is one of the great uh, sort of crowning achievements of our field is a recognition that we driven by theory, we were able to invest billions of dollars to get to a set of discoveries that we could have only dreamed of, you know, 10 years ago.
1: Do you think that gravitational wave sensor was more of a, like an engineering feat? Cause it, it just seems so incredible to, to be able to sense something so so small or was it more of like a theory? Like, you know, I, I guess like what, what was the hardest part of that? Well, there are early days
0: that, that predated uh, me. Um, where theorists were in active discussion about whether you could even use these so-called uh, interferometers with lasers to to look for this deformation. And once people became convinced that the theory was right, it you're exactly right. This became an engineering feat, which you know, to maybe more of an interest of your um, of your listeners is is about project management and about people management and bringing the right people uh, to the table um, with the right skill set. And, rec- and recognizing of course that the entire endeavor doesn't need to be one big innovation right there are places where you absolutely need to innovate and create new things that don't exist for you to get to your goal but to do this you know on essentially on time and under and on budget on a 20 30 year time scale is just mind boggling
1: is the is the achievement of that just sort of verifying that that gravitational waves exist, or do we have kind of a new type of sensor that might kind of somehow find interesting stuff in our world?
0: Well, well without without sort of trying to prejudice where things are going, I will say that, that the history of astronomy in that context of opening up your eyes to new things uh, invariably leads to discoveries that were unexpected. Uh, sure. So far, I'd say the only large unexpected thing that's come out of the gravitational wave um, set of observations is the sheer mass, the enormity of the individual black holes that are colliding. There wasn't a lot of great motivation to say that we'd be seeing 100 and 200 solar mass black holes that were colliding into each other. So in some sense, it comes back to the astrophysicists ask the question, how do you even make? hundred solar mass black holes, and then put them in the vicinity of another hundred solar mass black hole. You know, we were thinking in the end, it would be sort of 10 solar mass and 20 solar mass black holes. That was sort of the best bet if you ask most astronomers. So there's a little bit of surprise on that. None of us were surprised of the existence of gravitational waves. There, There had actually been Nobel prizes given out For the indirect discovery of the existence of gravitational radiation by looking at the orbit decay of of, of neutron stars in a a binary system so we had known that the it was very likely that this existed but the direct detection of that was a very beautiful vindication and now that we're there and we're you know having to grapple with understanding the demographics of the sort of black hole population uh a real interesting question is how, as I was saying earlier, how can we use our observations
1: going forward to test general ideas about general relativity? When I was a kid, I remember learning about the Hubble telescope and the excitement around, I mean, I think in general sort of putting telescopes into space was like this big, exciting project that that seemed really cool. I guess, have we sort of gotten so good at like signal processing or sort of undoing the effects of the atmosphere, that that's no longer like such a important thing to do to get our telescopes up in space? Or like, I I guess like, where does tell us, I mean, it also seems like when I was a kid, I had the sense that telescopes were getting bigger and bigger and we were seeing more and more things, but has that maybe stopped? Like, do we still aspire to make even more gigantic (laughs) telescopes to see deeper into space or... Well, I well, think it, that's it's a great question.
0: It depends on who you ask. There isn't a general consensus of the right answer for that and and the, which is good because the right answer is you do what the, what the science demands. Mm-hmm. And uh, there is a very successful satellite that was launched into space uh, called the test satellite whose sole purpose was to look for Earth mass. Planets around Sun-like stars, and to find to find those, um, just using the so-called transit technique, where you know one star, uh, where one planet moves in front of its parent star, and that sl- star slightly dims. To do that, you need to see the dimming of a star in you know one part in ten to the five or one part in ten to the six, which you just can't do from the ground. There's just too much atmospheric flickering that you just can't correct. We can get down to one part in ten to the three or maybe one part in ten to the four from the ground, but that's pretty much as far as we're going to be able to go. So for finding exoplanets of Earth mass size, you pretty much have to go into space. And so rather than build a huge telescope, what they did is mount, you know, the the equivalent of a bunch of glorified cannons and a bunch of glorified iPhones to look at a very large swath of the space so they could study many, many stars simultaneously. And there they weren't all that interested in, in looking at stars that were faint because once you discover one of these planets, you want to have lots and lots of photons with other follow-up facilities to actually do all the work. So they actually needed a very wide field to get very bright stars. But there are other people who are launching large um, satellites with large mirrors uh, because they want to look at very faint explosions, supernovae in in, in very, very uh, distant galaxies. And yes, you can do that from the ground. Uh, It just turns out from a price perspective, there are some types of science that are actually easier and cheaper to do from, from space. My own interest uh, is sort of depends upon, you know can I do this from the ground? If not, what's the simplest and cheapest thing that we can do from space? One of the things I'm really excited about, uh, which you may not be aware of, is there is a quite a big and interesting push now towards smaller um, format satellites, i.e. Uh, CubeSats, in part because if you have a very dedicated science goal, and you need to look at, let's say, one object for just a month, but you need to do at one second cadence. Um, that's really hard to do from the ground, but you could potentially do it from space very, very cheaply now because the actual parts are largely commoditized. And the launch, which is a very dominant cost for, for heavy space vehicles, is more or less zero because there's so many launch vehicles going up into space for all these different reasons, you can piggyback a whole bunch of these small satellites more or less for free. So what I think you'll see in the next 10 years or so is a a renaissance, um, not so much at the large telescope level, but at the small telescope level in space.
1: And the last thing I'll
0: just say, Uh, is that we sometimes have to go to space because the earth's atmosphere blocks certain wavelengths. So if we're interested, for instance, in the ultraviolet sky and phenomena at the ultraviolet sky, well, you know, because of our ozone layer, we we block off most of the
1: UV light. So we couldn't do anything from the ground. Cool. Well, I guess I want to make sure I ask you some questions about um, machine learning also. And I I, I wanted to ask you about, so you have this kind of group like ML for, for science, right? That, that. I, I'm curious, like, you know, what inspired you to put that together and and what kinds of stuff y- you work on there? Well, it might be worth talking a little
0: about how we stumbled upon machine learning in, in, in my research and, and kind of where that uh, where that's led to. Uh, about 12, 13 years ago, we were actually dealing with lots of images coming off of, of telescopes from the ground. And the normal behavior when you get lots of data had been, and in many circles still is, just to hire more grad students to look at the data. Mm-hmm. And I was looking for ways to kind of scale our way out of what was a very repetitive inference task, which was the discovery of new events in the sky. And what what we typically deal with is a, um, a new image that's taken of the sky, and you have a template image of that same part of the sky taken in the, the months prior where you've stacked up a whole bunch of really good images and you subtract the two off, Mm. that subtraction process is imperfect because of the atmosphere, because of instrumentation effects. And what people would do is look at postage stamps around all the kind of five sigma new positive signals, but most of those are actually spurious. So the first place where we landed in the utility of machine learning for my own research was creating uh, what we call a, a real bogus detector where we trained off of good subtractions, i.e. of real objects and bad ones because of all these different detector effects and and instrument effects. And uh, we're able to build something with, you know, good enough false positive and false negative rates that we're able to put that into production and uh, kind of uh, reduce the amount of time it would take a person to look at a whole night's worth of candidates from hours down to minutes. And um, still keeping a person in the loop. At, at the time, I sort of had the conceit that, okay, if we can do this, it means then we don't need people to like look at the follow-up data. We can actually just get to the point of almost writing a paper without any people in the loop. But as, as you know well from, from your current work in your previous company, uh, people in the real-time loop is still important and can be very important, even when it's machine learning-assisted, so that was very successful in that uh, it was back in the old days of Random Forest um, before deep learning kind of um, had its renaissance. And now this idea of real bogus discovery is, it happens pretty much in every project going way beyond where we were a while
1: ago, now using modern deep learning techniques can I ask, uh, before you go further, you know, in, in my previous work, I always admired the site uh, Galaxy Zoo, where they kind of got lots of people to sort of crowdsource some of the labeling of these images. Did you, did you look at that at all? That always seemed like such a cool uh, project to me.
0: I did look at that. Yeah, I yes, I did look at that. I think sort of crowdsourcing uh, in astronomy has been really wonderful as an outreach tool. Um, and there certainly have been some scientific papers that have come out of that. In particular, there was a discovery of sort of a weird class of, of gas around certain types of galaxies that was made by somebody looking at galaxy zoo images. But a lot of the labeling, if I'm being really honest, by uh, people in the, in the galaxy zoo world uh, could have been done and ought to have been done by machine learning classifiers. So. Is this a spiral galaxy? Is this a red galaxy? The, the questions that, that generally are asked in that world, I, I've done this in classes that I've taught. Have a student, you know, for, for a final project, try to reproduce the rock curves of people in classification, and they can do well. And we, we actually showed for the supernova classification challenge, uh, we were able to build a machine learning classifier off of the original training data from Galaxy Zoo and out outperform Galaxy Zoo in a false positive, false negative sense. So one of the challenges that I think all of us have in employing people uh, to do repetitive inference tasks is to ask ourselves the hard question of, can I have a machine do it? And if the goal is to involve people so that they're involved in research and they're helping, that's fantastic. If the goal is to get people looking at data because... Maybe they'll also see something that and answer a question that we didn't even ask. That's fantastic as well. But for the specific tasks that a lot of crowdsourcing um, questions have asked, I think especially with with, uh, where computer vision has arisen, um, we're able to do that better. Moreover, we're able to do it faster and moreover, we're able to do it in a repeatable way. So one of the other challenges, of course, if you ask somebody to label a bunch of data and then you ask them to come back tomorrow after they've had a beer and labeled the same data, you'll get a different answer. And so from understanding like the demographics of everything we see, I think it becomes a lot harder when you have people that are you know deeply part of, of, of that process.
1: Gotcha. So I, I cut you off though. So did it sounds like, I mean, you were doing this quite a while ago and especially vision techniques, I think, have massively improved. I don't know even especially vision techniques, but there was kind of this moment where vision got, got quite a lot better. Did that affect the way you used machine learning in your work?
0: Yeah, well, so so we always are, are careful in the sense to try not to look around in an astronomy and say, that's a computer vision task that's clearly solvable now by CNN, so let's go work on that problem. There is a little bit of the everything looks like a, a nail because we have this really cool hammer. That was a computer vision task, this real bogus detector that we had to solve if we were going to break this sort of grad student bottleneck. There are plenty of tasks that people are doing, asking questions of images that were around before, but perhaps weren't as interesting because we had no way of solving those problems. And now we can do those at scale. I actually focus less on images now and focus more on irregular time series data. Um, but I think one of the important things to recognize about where astronomy is maybe relative to many of the other fields uh, of, the, of the people you've talked about on this podcast is that we haven't had that moment maybe that existed in, in NLP where, you know, Jelnick said every time I fire a linguist, my language detector gets better, right? The, the idea that if you start removing domain experts out of the, out of the loop and you actually start building you know, language models, just learning off of data, and it gets better and better. We don't have that moment in astronomy. And, you know, computer vision is is, is the same thing too, right? You, you you fire a bunch of old school computer vision experts that, you know, learned about Huff transforms and stuff. And now you just throw it into a big CNN with lots of training data, you get better answers than what you were able ever able to do in the past. That hasn't happened in astronomy, right? We've used this, we've used ML in lots of different places as sort of accelerants and as surrogates to to harder computations. So we can get faster answers. We can do inference at scale in ways we weren't able to do before. But, you know, it's the same thing in in biology, right? ML didn't invent CRISPR. And Caitlin Carrico, who was this person who toiled away for decades, trying to understand how mRNA could um, lead to a vaccine... She was actively, you know denied tenure and actively denied grants. Uh, she had nothing to do with ML, but if, if it wasn't for her, we wouldn't have vaccines for, for COVID. Biology, I think also hasn't had its ML moment where you can start firing domain experts and start doing things. Right now, physics, astronomy, chemistry, for the most part we're, 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 we're working in a world where machine learning is this a really big important tool in our toolbox, but it's not become the fundamental driver of how new insights happen.
1: But I, I guess one key difference here, though, is is like the the work product of astronomy is kind of explaining the world that that we live in, right? Whereas, first of all, I'm not sure if I agree with the, the comment about linguist, and I <laughs> I don't want to go record, my on record. I take any my um, <laughs> but no, no, I know, I know, I know what you mean. But uh, I, I think like definitely like ling- linguists still do the best job of kind of explaining language, like in the content. I mean, I think ling- linguists would probably say, you know, we use, you know, ML techniques to kind of understand language better. Not like we've replaced ourselves, although <clears throat> it seems like, you know, modern translation techniques are less informed by linguistics than you might. Well, I might've expected when I was <laughs> you know younger. So I wonder, I wonder if, if it's, it's sort of a, like a function of a domain, being more trying to like you know engineer a certain solution to a specific problem versus you know do some kind of explanation, I mean we actually talked to a whole bunch of you know biologists, and it does sort of seem like some of the processes around drug discovery are starting to be more and more informed by ml and kind of moving in that that direction
0: yeah, I certainly don't, and I think that's where we exactly are right now is there is a huge amount of ml that is informing astronomy, but I don't think we're there anywhere near where the NLP world is. And in part, it's because we haven't, to your point, we haven't really been able to articulate a set of outcomes that are comparable or uh, have as much weight or as much uh, import as an NLP task like translation, right? You can directly um, correlate, I assume, the quality of a translation from language A to language B to some dollar outcome. And in astronomy, we we don't have the ability to do that. So our loss function is a little bit more complicated. And as we're learning these various different tasks as part of our, our, our workflow, we don't have the ability in the same way many other fields do to articulate that loss function in terms that, are, that have this sort of monetary value. When you ask this question about what is the nature of dark energy uh, or dark matter or how many exoplanets are there out there that, that host life, uh, those are quantif- in some sense quantifiable answers. But as you're saying, that's sort of where more of the explainability has to come in. Uh, and I, I certainly don't think we're even trying to get to the point where we fire a physicist so that I can hire you know, a computer scientist. It's going to be the, the marriage of those two people or as, as an individual in their skill sets who are gonna make a lot of the progress. And I think the really exciting place where we could get to, and there are little tiny pieces of this starting to happen, is whether uh, you know, an application of ML to uh, a bunch of data can be something that leads to a discovery on a bunch of questions that we didn't even know how to ask, and that would be a, a real hallmark moment in our, in our field. Right now, everything is done largely in a supervised context. Obviously, sort of have some semi supervised and unsupervised ways of looking for anomalies and and outliers and things like that. But even that. It becomes a guide to a domain scientist looking at this and say, oh, yeah, of course I know what these things are, or this is because the data is spurious. Um, maybe what's really fundamental, if I think about it, is that the job of you know, these ML pipelines that we build on different parts of our, our, our data isn't so much about prediction, in the same way that you know if i need to predict what the next word is or i need to predict if this is a cat or a dog or what what the best thing to show somebody is next you have a that that is the proof in the pudding and you've done well because you can measure what the outcomes are after that if i make a prediction in astronomy that's really just for hypothesis testing right if i have a new theory that's gleaned off of data. Um, the job of that theory is to make a prediction about what happens if I observe outside of the domain of the data that I already have to falsify itself. We yeah. haven't really wrapped our head around the idea that ML in the context of the physical sciences isn't just about you know making predictions at scale so that we can get slightly better data farther down the work chain. It, it, if it's going to actually drive our deeper understanding of how the universe works, it it has to couch itself in the terms of hypothesis testing occam's razor and we haven't really gotten there yet
1: i'm so surprised to hear you say that cuz I, I feel like you know just it sort of seems like we, like we fund all this work to make like better devices and telescopes and it seems like they like pay us back in terms of like these really like awesome new understandings about the the physical world and it sort of seems like you know you make a bigger telescope that, that's sort of just like seeing things slightly better, however you put it, right? Like, like, isn't it kind of similar? Like, if if ML could help you kind of get better data to inform your predictions, w- wouldn't that be a, a big deal? Like, does it really need to sort of like, do Do you really need to be like completely replaced by ML for it to be... Um, no, 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 no. I, I,
0: I certainly don't want to come off in, in in trying to make the argument that ML hasn't been important. We're currently working on a project where... Uh, a big part of that whole data taking, data planning, data reduction, uh, initial discovery, initial inference, initial follow-up, that all happens. There's little pieces of ML through that entire chain. That all happens without people in the loop now, which is absolutely incredible. Telescopes more or less talking to telescopes mitigated by ML. This is where we are. It's only, there's only going to be more of that going on. And what we're doing is we're optimizing you know, our resources and our resource allocation because we're using ML. But I I still see that as fundamentally uh, an accelerant and a surrogate to what we were pretty much doing in the past. I haven't seen anything that fundamentally changes the way we conduct ourselves as, as physicists. But again, as I said, there are little pieces starting to show up, or the rediscovery of the Higgs boson using kind of pure ML without reference to, you know, the, the basic physics of, of how particles
1: interact. Wow. Do you um, think that would have worked without knowing about it? I mean, is that- That's
0: the question, right? So until we get to the point where someone says, I ran my ML pipeline on this particle physics data, and I saw this new thing, and everyone in the group didn't believe me until they got 10 times more data, and it turns out it was there. We haven't really, really gotten there yet. There's been a few places where people have found another exoplanet in a in a complicated data set that people hadn't seen before. But astronomers, for the most part, are, are are still Bayesians, right? And we're we're still governed by Bayes' rule, where we come to we come to our problem with a bunch of priors, we get data that updates our beliefs, and we get slightly better or sometimes much better understandings in our posteriors. If we talk about inference and understanding, we need to couch it in terms of what we think are the physical properties and the physical things and the parameters that describe the object that we're looking at. We're getting better at that. I'm, one of the big things I'm doing on in ML right now is trying to use uh, different types of uh, networks in a whole kind of new class of, uh, of approaches called likelihood free inference to go directly from raw observations to, to posteriors. Or approximate posteriors, and I think that's
1: like extremely exciting, and it could be applied to a whole bunch of different places. Cool, that's so cool. I guess what one thing that I wonder about—it must be kind of interesting being in your shoes. Are, Are you doing most of this with like ML grad students? Like, are you are you kind of at the point with your data pipelines where you need to kind of pull experts from industry, or or maybe I mean, it's so funny how much of our data pipeline. Stuff has come originally from astronomy and and sciences in general. So maybe it's always at the cutting edge, or do you feel like you need to get like kind of experts in terms of just handling these volumes of data sets and building these gigantic models? Um, It's a great question.
0: So uh, again, I think the answer depends. There are lots of examples uh, in my own research and my own work where hiring very good data engineers. Uh, and, you know, having some ML expertise on the team suffices. It's where you actually need to innovate, create new algorithms, take some, you know, existing network and completely blow it up and change the way that it works, that you do need somebody with a deep domain background in, in in CS ML. One of the beautiful things about being on the Berkeley campus is uh how just everyone across campus is looking to work with each other because again we all kind of recognize uh, at least from the from the physical domain side that there's incredible work that's happening in you know the computer science department the stats department I've just become uh, a member of the faculty of bear on um, the Berkeley AI research group so I get to interact with those grad students and those postdocs we still, I think face the challenge that any um, academic uh, uh, arena does when crossing over into other fields of trying to make the kinds of problems we have compelling for the other side and have the other side recognize that they're not just, you know, setting up a Spark cluster for us and, you know, downloading ResNet. Um, What the people in computer science and stats need to realize is that we are asking questions of data in a way that they are not. of of the sort of benchmark data sets that they're often working on algorithmically. And um, because of that, there needs to be some real fundamental innovation. I've been really fortunate in my career uh, to have gotten grants that have allowed me to hire people outside of a traditional astronomy background, hired PhDs in computer science and statistics. And that's where some of the most interesting innovations happen. Uh, Where we're at, I'd say now as a profession, is really struggling with the idea of how much should our students have to learn for them to be able to work on this as their kind of, you know, their, their main endeavor. We don't have, as part of our curriculum a deep training in stats, let alone ML, um, let alone software engineering. And so I, I don't know where they find the time and where they will find the time going forward to be able to get all of that in at a fundamental level. We're, we're working on it, we're trying. Uh, Berkeley has started a new data science major that the astronomy department is connecting up into with their own classes, but there isn't at the national level, a, a, you know, a holistic understanding of how we're going to do training of the next generation of physical scientists. So they're not just conversant in ML, but they can actually do a, a bunch
1: themselves. Well, actually that uh, the question I wanted to ask you which this is a good segue, you know, when I when I was looking at your website, you know, I found hundreds of research papers, but also kind of mixed in some, you know, opinionated blog-like posts on, you know, programming language details. And I, I was actually kind of wondering for you, and maybe it's something I'm asking myself, like, how do you stay current on, I mean, how did you even find time to, you know, get to a high level of programming at all? And how do you kind of stay on top of that are you spending time writing writing code yourself as a professor
0: yeah i write i write a lot of code that's some of my happiest times so you know you, you uh in some sense that's my that's my hobby i i you know i came to programming early on in my in my academic career when i was an undergraduate where i was basically told by uh my future advisor at los alamos i can't work there for the summer unless i've taken a class in c and i i did uh And that was more or less the only class I ever took in in computer science. But then again, it was this matter of of necessity, just like it is with building better telescopes. Um, I uh, decided when I was a postdoc to automate an old mothball telescope, which was a fairly large one meter class telescope in Arizona and kind of take all the pieces that had been manual when the telescope had been run before and automate every single piece of it so it could run autonomously. And I asked a friend of mine at Los Alamos, which language should I write in? And he said, Python. And I said, what's that? He said, just do it. It's a cool language. That was in Wait, 2000- what year is this? That was 2002. Oh, wow. So, so I, wrote, I wrote a whole telescope automation software package using state machines and, you know, connecting up to device drivers and C++ in 2002, where I was just kind of feeling my way through it. Uh, I think I wrote my own datetime module, and I didn't realize that datetime was there. So you know I, I just stumbled upon it. and then what do you do when you're an academic and you wind up realizing something's interesting is that you feel bad that you're not teaching it to your students, so you do. So I, I started in uh, 2008 a bunch of Python boot camps on campus to get people into Python, in part because you know I, especially at Berkeley, we we kind of caught the open source ethos pretty early. And the kinds of languages that people around me were using, like IDL (Interactive Data Language) and and MATLAB, were just expensive. And moreover, uh, as as scientists, we we certainly want to understand the algorithms that we uh, that we apply, and we want to at least be able to look under the hood uh, if we need to. So I started evangelizing sort of Python around these parts, and started building classes on top of Python, so a, a graduate level seminar on how do you actually use Python in the real world, ranging everywhere from doing stats to uh, scaling uh, Python programs, to testing frameworks, to interacting with hardware. So that class still goes on, but I've uh, got to say I've ossified a little bit around Python. I've spent a little bit of time with, with a few other languages, but for me, I've become conversant enough. And gotten fairly deep into this scientific Python community, Jupyter, for instance, with Fernando Perez here in the stats department, uh, is, is really uh, been a huge part of what I've, I've used for teaching for a long time. And the NumPy and the SciPy stack have a lot of activity here on campus as well. Stefan Vanderwalt has a huge role in that. So it, it's sort of in the water, I'd say. It, the, definitely the proof is in the pudding, having recognized that Python uh is extremely versatile as a sort of super glue language for all the kind of stuff that we do. And yes, I still I still code. Last summer during the pandemic, the happiest times were me learning React. So I could build this large scale React app that we're doing for astronomers to interact over uh, over data.
1: Is it React fun? I love I React is so much fun for me. I,
0: I thought I hated yeah, front I would
1: use the word fun. Uh it's it's a it's a really
0: what I love about it is just so wonderfully different than the way you think about Python programming. And obviously it's rewarding in a sense that you you build it, you ship it, and users see it right away in a way that if you build some cool, you know, Python tool, you may be the only one in the world that uses it just because it's on PyPy doesn't mean that somebody's actually gonna download it, use it.
1: Does it make you um well, did you use TypeScript with React? No. No,
0: no, we were doing, we were like, J, we were like JSX kind of.
1: I see. I see. Yeah. Cool. Cool. Yeah. Maybe I just like react. Cause I, I think I was writing a lot of front end stuff, you know, around 2008 and then, and found it frustrating and then kind of went back to it a few years ago and just, you know, was impressed how much, how much things had evolved in, in the decade. So. Um, I love uh, react, but I don't like testing react apps. Ah, uh, Yeah. <laughs> I was trying to add typing to some stuff recently. Actually, with your student uh, Danny, and and uh, I was I was really wishing that, that Python's typing worked a little bit more elegantly, especially in the scientific um, com- computing domain. So, um, do do you feel like? Um, I mean, I felt like when I was doing research briefly, the code bases were like truly like messy in a way I've never experienced in in industry. Like, do do you? this may be a long time ago. Like, do you do things in your lab to kind of keep things maintainable, like maintainable as kind of students come in and out and you need to do various uh, research projects? Like, do you, are you able to kind of find time to clean up code and eliminate tech debt and things like that? I, I mean, I, I
0: think we're probably better than most, but you're never, never as good as I'd like to be, is, is sure. probably the, the reasonable answer. I'm at least aware of the existence of things like unit tests, unlike many, <laughs> of, the, uh, many of my colleagues uh, in, in our field. Um, yeah, it, it, it's, it is a mess. And again, it comes back down to loss functions and incentives, right? Yeah, um, totally. You know, we're not, when we write a grant, there's no imperative as much as I think it'd be great. To say, by the way, the, one of the outcomes if if you're writing code has to be that this is going on, on GitHub and that it's going to have a like a CI/CD like a Travis attached to it, so that when pull requests come in, you know that they're going to be working or not. Like, there's none of that at all. So if you do any of it, you're doing it at the goodness of your heart uh, at zeroth order, but as you know, first order, it's because you're doing it to help yourself in the in the future. You know, oftentimes in a research context. Uh, And this gets back to, I think, a question you're asking about, do you need to hire ML people to work with massive amounts of data? What I was going to say is that not all of what we do is massive data. Astronomy has a lot of data, but we have like only a small number of labels, for instance. So we have like it's a big data problem, but actually a tiny number of labels for the kinds of stuff that that I'm interested in or, you know, zero labels. Um, So how do you do one shot learning? Is a really interesting kind of problem in a physical context in the presence of noise and uncertainty and model uncertainty there's lots of questions that we ask in the context of ml that are actually kind of smallish data problems or they're large computation problems because the forward model is extremely expensive and requires a supercomputer but the 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 amount of data we're dealing with is is thumb drive level Um, but Mm -hmm. because of that uh, we tend to atomize our activities around, uh, around projects, around papers. Mm-hmm. So I write a paper with a student. We figure out a cool new thing to do in the machine learning context. And unless that is going to be like a major new widget that gets plugged into some you know, new facility or existing facility, then it's just out there in the world and people can write papers saying their scaling curve is better than my scaling curve and we can have an argument in a conference one day. That's sort of the end of that code base, right? Mm-hmm. Um, whereas, as you know, in, in, the, in, the, in the industry world, you're generally not writing code as a one-off and then just casting it aside. Right, um, right. So, so the incentives there uh, to keep things maintainable you know, keep things up to the latest versions of Python and blah blah. blah. They, they just really aren't there for most of what we do. There is a subset of what we do where it absolutely has to be battle tested because more and more people are going to be downloading it and, and using it. I tend to I tend to see those projects as extremely exciting, but there's not a lot of I'd say astronomers who have the experience with full you know CI/CD pipelines and in production. Uh, you know DevOps
1: that I've been lucky to have in my career. Well, let me ask you this: I mean, what is what is your lab's tech stack look like? Are you using like PyTorch? Like, what's what's your your standard tooling? Have you are you on? Well, I've actually been 27? pretty agnostic as students have come in because I, I tend
0: to uh, students tend to gravitate towards me who are interested in ML, and I'm, I naturally gravitate towards them. That's how I guess gravity works. Sure. Um, I've been agnostic to whether it's you know the TensorFlow land or or PyTorch land. I think that's becoming less and less important as TensorFlow has evolved, sort of more towards the, the the PyTorch way of thinking about the problem. But I'm you know if you if you said build me an ML thing right now probably start in Keras just based on my own my own past experience. But I, obviously I'm looking at code in, with PyTorch and PyTorch Lightning, I think is from a teaching perspective. That's the last time that I had to teach some ML, I was doing it in PyTorch Lightning. Although I had a notebook in Keras and I, I reproduced the same thing in PyTorch Lightning. And of course, we had weights and biases there as well. For, oh, nice! For that really warms my stuff, heart. <laughs> I've been introducing a, a new cohort of people to your to your product. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so that's you know that's obviously like top of the top of the stack. It very much is a Pythonic world now. And as I was saying before, on this other large project, which is called Sky Portal, uh, that we're using as an interaction platform, with uh, now hundreds of people are using it on a daily basis. Um, looking at real data as it's, as it's flowing in and interacting over individual objects. Um, that tech stack is obviously more complicated. There is a component of it, which is slightly external to the stuff that I built in my group, but is part of our project, which is more or less a large MongoDB engine um, that's dealing with terabytes of, uh, of data. And there's a bunch of ML plugins to that that run in sort of uh, real time. And that, that's, I think, using TensorFlow. Uh, and then what we've built is essentially a tornado-based sort of API-first uh, backend, and it
1: attaches to a really large Postgres database, and on the front end is, is, is React. Cool. Well, we're, we're almost out of time, maybe we're even over time, but I, we always end with two questions that I'd love to ask you. Um, and the second to last is is basically, is there a topic in ML that you think should be studied more than it is? Is there something that you would look into if, if you had, you know, extra time on on your hands? Yeah, uh, I, I mean, there are a lot of things I wish I had more time for. Where
0: I think there needs to be more work in in the ML world is around UQ uncertainty quantification. Astronomy and physics works in a world that's sensor-based fundamentally in terms of our observations because it's sensor-based, there's noise. So unlike in the kind of AlphaGo Atari world where every pixel has a perfect measurement, if you take an image of the sky or you, you measure some time series, there's noise associated with it. And because there's noise and because there's a finite amount of training data, if you build models off of that, you get... Uncertainties in the models because of its lack of expressiveness or its overgeneralization or uh, overfitting, and then you also have a, a source of uncertainty in what it is that you're trying to understand, just because fundamentally you don't have a perfect measurement. Your signal noise isn't perfect, and I see some of that research again coming out of the ML world, but I see some of the stuff I'm most interested in is coming out of the physics and astronomy meets meets ML world, and I'd love to see more of that more broadly. I think it's partly our fault as domain scientists for not coming up with the equivalent of grand challenges, like with a protein folding mm-hmm. where if we had this we would we would be able to make great strides um we We need to have those sort of not just benchmark data sets uh for other fields to be playing with, but we also need to be really clear about some of the important questions that we're asking, and I think in the end back to a lot of what we were talking about throughout um, this whole interview, doing inference and doing interpretability on the models that we build uh, requires a, a fundamental understanding of the noise model uh, of the data. And without that, not nothing of what we do is going to be believable. Interesting.
1: I guess that uh, that's a good segue to my, my final question, which is, you know, when you look at kind of making the machine learning models like actually work for you, like actually do something useful. Like what are the big challenges that you typically run into? Well, it is
0: a good segue from the from the previous one because could, we are the same thing. We are <laughs> struggling, we are struggling, I'd say, as a community, with recognizing that there's this large algorithmic uh, toolkit that has been developed in the computer vision NLP world that we could just take make a couple modifications to and do what we're already doing, you know, sort of better, faster, and at scale. Um, and as I was sort of arguing through the middle part of the interview, uh, that isn't where I think the biggest sort of revolutions are going to come from, or at least I hope that's not where they come from, if ML is going to wind up being involved. So one of the harder problems is articulating what are the really hard problems in, in astronomy that can only be solved with, you know, new ML tools or new ML innovation. And, you know, we're all working on it in different ways. We all have our different biases. I I think we may wind up getting there. The other one is maybe more practical, uh, which is that it is very hard to put machine learning into practice. Uh, It's easy to write a paper on on machine learning and and convince a referee that, you know, you're doing pretty well. Uh, Maybe release some code, maybe have the referee kick the tires on that code. That's that's pretty much where we're at as a community, but trying to get it into a real workflow that affects real people's lives on the other side of that, there's not a lot of us that have experience with it and no one's really trained to do it well. So most of the time when it's done, it's done in an ad hoc way and you know, leveraging some understanding of how software engineering is supposed to work. But as you know well, machine learning in production is a very different beast than ordinary software in production. And I don't think as a as a community, we fully grasp how hard it is. The other side of that, of course, is that because machine learning is so exciting to so many, uh, we're starting to train a, a number of, of students that have kind of just enough knowledge to be dangerous. But because, again, everything looks like a nail um, when you've got a new hammer, a lot of people, I think, are going off hitting nails that they ought not to be. And one of the things that... Um, I always say when somebody says, what's the worst thing about machine learning is I always say it's because you always get an answer. And especially in in the context that we're looking at, if we always get an answer and we're getting data that's outside of our original domain or there's some notions of concept drift or something because the instrument is changing, we don't have any guardrails against that. Luckily, unlike in many of the fields that that your listeners uh, work in, if we make a mistake, you know, people don't die and we don't blow up billion dollar you know, facilities and things like that. So we live in a little bit of a nice sandbox where the mistakes that we make may have implications for lack of good resource allocation. But we still could wind up making statements about how the universe works. That is fundamentally wrong because we don't know enough about what's happening under the hood. Well, Josh, thank you so much for your
1: time. I really appreciate it. That was was great. Yeah, thank you. Great questions. If you're enjoying this interview series, the most helpful thing that you can do for us is leave us a review. It helps other people find the show. And really, we do these shows so that people watch them. And what I really want is more people to find it. So if you leave us a review, I really appreciate it.